You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. This week from New York, but with eyes firmly trained on Beijing as the Chinese Communist Party sets the country's course for the next five years and the rest of the world tries to work out what on earth's going on. We're heading for a new Cold War between China and the US if we're not there already. That's the line you hear more and more often as the US slaps controls on semiconductor exports to China and China ramps up its rhetoric on Taiwan. So far, Europe has tried to stay above the fray. But there's a creeping worry that Europe's leaders might be misjudging President Xi Jinping, just as they misjudged Vladimir Putin. Europe's not dependent on Chinese gas, it's true, but 80% of its solar panel imports come from there and a lot of other things that might turn out to be hard to source elsewhere. We have a fascinating report on all of that from Carolyn Look in Frankfurt and James Mager in Beijing in a little while. We also have a chilling historian's take on the relationship between war and inflation and the true lessons of the 1970s from Professor Neil Ferguson. We know one big difference from that other Cold War with the Soviet Union, that China's economy is much more integrated with the global economy than the Soviet Union's ever was. Yet our real-time understanding of what's happening at the government level is, if anything, worse than it was in Kremlinologist days, or at least seems to be going in that direction. This has been especially evident during the twice-a-decade Communist Party Congress. As we heard last week from our reporter on the ground, Callum Murphy, it is not an easy gig to cover. But Bloomberg's chief economist, Tom Orlick, has a better handle on what's been happening than most having lived 11 years in Beijing and written two books on the Chinese economy. So, Tom, thanks for being with us again. Uh, I guess you should start by just reminding us briefly of the significance of this event. So the Party Congress takes place once every five years, and it brings together all of China's top leaders, 2,300 delegates, and they do a few important things. They look back on the successes and failures. They look ahead to the years to come and set the big policy directions. And crucially, they make decisions about personnel. Who's going to be the general secretary of the Communist Party? And so also normally the president of China and the head of the military. And who are going to be the standing committee, the group of seven flanking the general secretary that make all the big decisions? 
Now, we've been told that the two big things to look for come right at the beginning and at the end. Um, We have now had the first, the president's speech to the party faithful on Sunday. Did we learn anything from that? So when I first moved to China back in 2007, there was this public um, safety campaign underway, campaign to sort of get rid of accidents and make Chinese people safer. And the catchphrase of that campaign was Anchuan Di Yi, safety first, or perhaps security first. And in Xi Jinping's report to the party congress, that word Anchuan, security, took on a new significance. And I think what that tells us is that priorities at the top levels of China's government have changed. 20 years ago, the biggest word would have been Fajan, development, and there'd have been excitement about opening and policy experimentation and collaboration with the rest of the world. This time round, the most important word is Anchuan, security. And what that speaks to is a China that sees itself in a more hostile world, fighting with the United States, fighting against pandemics, trying to secure what it has rather than open up and explore new opportunities. As you mentioned at the start, we've been encouraged to think about this as a, as a matter of personnel as well as uh, policy. And at some point, probably at the weekend, um, we are going to see who this, this new standing committee are, the new senior people in China. And it seems a pretty fair bet that President Xi Jinping and people close to him are going to still be in charge after this Congress. Now, there's been a lot of uh, concern about uh, Xi Jinping getting a closer and closer hold on on power and and staying in for so long. But maybe it's because I've been a bit focused on the incredible uh, dynamics underway in the UK. It sort of feels like, to me, stability in China might be no bad thing short term when you think about the rest of the world being in such flux and seeming rather scary. So um, Deng Xiaoping um, is, is remembered as China's great economic reformer, Stephanie, um, but he was also a reformer of China's governance system. And in particular, he introduced the two-term limit for top leaders. Jiang Zemin, who followed Deng, observed the two-term limit. Hu Jintao, who followed Jiang, observed the two-term limit. Xi Jinping, very likely, is set to reach the the two-term limit and stay as general secretary for three terms and who knows perhaps even beyond that. Um, Now short term as you mentioned China's got a bunch of challenges with Covid zero with property with fracturing ties with the United States maybe a bit of stability isn't a bad thing. Thinking longer term though well there was a reason why Deng Xiaoping didn't want leaders to stay in power for too long. He vividly remembered the trauma which China went through in the late years under Mao Zedong. He didn't want a repeat of that. So it was, is China immediately going to slide into the kind of chaos and dysfunction that we saw in Mao's cultural revolution? Absolutely not. Could we over time see a deterioration in governance standards just because the same people have been at the top for too long? I think that's something we're going to have to keep an eye out for. And I know this is something that you've you've focused on. I mean, even though there's no changing of the guard at the top, lower down, uh, has there been a shift of skill set or focus on the sort of more junior officials or people in key economic jobs that we should worry about? 
So I think it's a really interesting question, um, Stephanie. Um, if we think about sort of the history of China's reform, there are these kind of characters who played a kind of really important role in the opening up of the economy and the modernization of the economic policy apparatus. Zhou Xiaochuan, the former head of the People's Bank of China, springs to mind. He played a crucial role in reform of the exchange rate, reform of the interest rate, reform of the banking system, opening up of the capital account. And he could do that because he was enormously smart, because he had a sort of a reform orientation, and because he had political muscle. Well, Zhou Xiaochuan is long gone now, and we have some of his disciples in charge. Yi Gang, the new head of the central bank, for example. The big question is, who follows them? Who are going to be the new visionary reformers? And are they going to have the political muscle to get things done? I don't see who's coming through in that next generation. And if we have some grey, faceless bureaucrats, some Communist Party apparatchiks moving into some of the top jobs at the central bank and the Ministry of Finance, well, I think there's going to be consequences of that for China's outlook. It's funny you should say that. I have a vivid memory. My first experience of Beijing was in the middle of a rather different crisis than the Asia financial crisis when I was a, a bag carrier for Larry Summers. And uh, at the end of a tour of Asia and all these countries that were going through various stages of financial meltdown, uh, he had an audience that we were all witness to with Zhu Rongji, who later became the, the, the premier, but had been the economic supremo in the, in the 90s. And his description and explanation of what had been happening across the region in terms of the economic and the financial dynamics was more eloquent and incisive than anything I'd heard from any commentator um, sitting in sitting in the US or, or, or in the UK. So that was definitely brought home to me, that, that quality at the centre at that time. And he was obviously another important figure. Zhu Rongji, a giant of Chinese reform, the man who took China into the World Trade Organization, the man who grasped the large and let go the small on the state sector of the economy, building national champions out of the biggest state firms and allowing dynamic private sector firms to play a larger role in the economy. He's now in his 90s. Where's the next generation? We've got used to thinking that smart technocrats were in charge at the centre of the Chinese strategy and that they would continually managed to pull it off despite the ups and downs in the economy. They would defy the sceptics and not have the kind of massive bust, the massive bursting of the bubble that so many people have predicted. And indeed, your own recent book um, talks about how they've managed to uh, avoid a, a real bursting of the bubble. From what you're saying, it sounds like maybe longer term, you might be less confident of their ability to, to dodge um, all the bullets that come their way. So, I'm not sure we're seeing a deterioration in governance standards right now. People look at COVID zero and they say, this is a policy failure. This is a dysfunction of China's authoritarian system. But I think you can equally make the case that COVID zero is doing a really good job of saving Chinese lives, a much better job perhaps than we've done over here in the United States or in Europe. People look at the property slump and say, this is the consequence of mismanagement. Um, and that's right. China's policymakers did allow the property bubble to swell to nearly unmanageable proportions. But to their credit, they moved ahead of a crisis 
and put policies in place to try and deflate the bubble in a controlled way. Um, so I think as Xi Jinping preps for a third term, as we wonder about who the next generation of top economic technocrats are going to be, we're right to be concerned about the possibility of a decline in governance standards and all that would mean for China's capacity to handle some really pretty formidable challenges. Um, but I'm not sure we're actually able to say that that decline is already underway. And going back to, to where I began, I mean, even experts like you are doing a bit of guesswork when it comes to who's in charge or who might be in charge down the road, what the what the strategy might be in future. Just that sheer lack of information and the flow of information um, between uh, China and the rest of the world. I mean, long term, does that trouble you as it troubles me? It is troubling, Stephanie. I mean, I think there's there's a kind of a natural barrier there, especially on the US side, simply from the fact that almost everything happening in China takes place in Chinese. And there's not many people in the US who have the mastery of the language to engage with it, either in the writing or in the speaking. But I think what we've seen in the last few years, first under Donald Trump and now continuing under Joe Biden, is a fracturing of ties on diplomacy, on business, on finance, even amongst academics. And what that means is the sort of the rich interchange of ideas and information just isn't there anymore. And if you couple that with the kind of the natural secrecy of China's single party state and their suspicion of sharing information, well, I think you've got a bit of an information vacuum there. And that's the sort of environment where it's really easy for relations to deteriorate further and for mistakes to be made. And as has been discussed on this program before, even at the academic level, you now have, you know, one would you and I both talk to eminent sinologists, people who are uh, very expert on, on every nuance of what happens in, in, in China or were, and they have to admit that they have not been for several years because of COVID. So, of course, that has also presented quite a big barrier. Tom Warlick, thank you. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. 
Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Thank you so much. As I mentioned at the start, the EU has not yet had the kind of fracturing in its relations with China that we've been talking about with reference to the US. But many would say it's just a matter of time and that the continent's leaders are not doing nearly enough to prepare. Our China economy editor in Beijing, James Mager, and Eurozone economy reporter Carolyn Look in Frankfurt have been taking a closer look at Europe's approach to China. And here's their report, voiced by Carolyn. Die Globalisierung war ein Erfolg, sie hat Wohlstand für viele ermöglicht. Wir müssen sie verteidigen. Und decoupling ist die falsche Antwort, sondern die richtige Antwort. Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who you just heard, is making plans for his first trip to China as German leader in early November, according to reports by Bloomberg News. It comes at a sort of awkward time, with his country on the verge of a recession that, in the worst case, risks replicating the scale of the great financial crisis, in large part thanks to Germany's outsized reliance on Russian gas. In the recording, which is from a conference he spoke at last week in Berlin, Scholz defends globalization despite the havoc that was caused by his country's economic interlinkages with Russia, arguing that so-called decoupling is the wrong answer. Germany shouldn't break off ties with other countries, he says, and in particular China, Germany's top trade partner, is a country it should keep doing business with. Wir müssen uns nicht abkoppeln von einigen Ländern, Geschäfte mit Einzelnen, ich sage ausdrücklich auch Geschäfte mit China. Germany and the wider continent's difficulties of dealing with the energy crisis sparked by Russia's war have drawn its relationship with China into sharp focus. While former U.S. President Donald Trump started a trade war with China in an attempt to rebalance it, European nations have seemed much more sanguine, even as their own trade deficit with China has soared, growing by over a third last year to 249 billion euros. Well, I mean, over the last years, uh, of course, trade relations were very, very deep and very ex extensive. But uh, at the same time, it was a bit lopsided. Uh, if you just look at the... Um... That's Jörg Wutke, president of the EU Chamber of Commerce in China, and also the Chinese representative of German chemical maker BASF. He makes the point that the actual market for Europeans in China is very small. Overall, the EU exports only a little more to China each year than it does to Switzerland, and about half of what they send to the US. Just the container movement, China to Europe in the first half was 3.5 million 40-feet containers, whereas Europe was selling into China 960,000 40-feet containers. So that's a ratio of 3.5 to 1. But for Germany and the rest of Europe, the question of what to do with China relations doesn't exactly feel like a priority compared with other priorities like the war in Ukraine and keeping European homes heated throughout the winter. Here's Jacob Gunter, an analyst at China-focused Merck's think tank in Berlin. There, there's definitely a rethink happening um, in, in terms of the EU's relationship with China, um, but it's, it's happening at a much slower rate than I think a lot of people might have anticipated. And I think most of that is driven by the fact that, like, you know, you have a today problem, you know, on your border, um, whereas China is a, you know, next week problem or a next month or a next year problem clear on the other side of the, of the continent. But others, such as the EU's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, 
do not think Europe can afford to keep this on the back burner. He recently called for Europe to wake up to the reality that the world it once knew, where it could rely on the U.S. for security and on Russia and China for prosperity, is no longer there. I think that the Europeans were facing a situation in which uh, we've suffered the consequences of a process that has been lasting for years in which we have decoupled the sources of our prosperity from the sources of our security. Increasingly, Europe's trade with China is not just lopsided, but unstable. Last year, the country blocked Lithuanian exports because of a dispute over Taiwan. And it torpedoed an investment treaty by sanctioning European officials after Europe sanctioned Chinese officials over allegations of human rights abuses in Xinjiang. The question lurking in the background is whether Europe has misjudged China and Xi Jinping the same way it has misjudged Putin. What could happen with Taiwan? What would a war in the strait mean for business with investments on both sides? or investments in Japan, Korea, or elsewhere in the region who would inevitably be dragged into a conflict? How painful would it be to cut off the supply chains from China or East Asia as quickly as European firms pulled out of Russia? Is it even possible? The evidence so far is that European companies aren't being deterred too much by these questions. Definitely, the market is uh, uh, so big and, and the technologies are wanted, uh, they have to be here in chemicals. China stands for 50% of uh, global markets, so if you're not at the table, you're going to be on the menu. That was Wutke from the EU Chamber of Commerce again. Foreign investment has continued to rise in 2022 though it has grown increasingly concentrated among big, mostly German players, according to data by research firm Rhodium Group. For any foreign business active in China, two and a half years of COVID zero policies have taken their toll on their bottom line. Profits at foreign industrial firms in China were down 12% in the first nine months of the year. And foreign firms from the US and other places that are in China are talking more and more about cutting or slowing investments. But according to Agatha Kratz, a director at Rhodium Group, very little of that reluctance to invest is related to the experience in Russia. But at the end of the day, we see very few companies that publicly come out and say, I am uncomfortable investing in China, or I'm uncomfortable engaging with China, given the nature of the regime, um, both in terms of just it being a one-man rule, and second, it being a human rights abusing country. So we're not seeing the, the way that companies when the war with Russia, well, between Russia and Ukraine broke out, the way that companies said, I'm pulling out, I can't be sustaining activity there if Russia is going to attack uh, Ukraine. Um, we're not seeing companies speak as clearly and openly about the fact that uh, they could just very well also be uncomfortable with a regime that has a lot of similarities, of course, in terms of its political uh, management. Still, Kratz says that Europe's main vulnerability vis-a-vis -vis China isn't the capital they've invested there. European companies, which are mainly German firms, have invested less in China over the last 20 years than they do in the US in a single year. I think that if tomorrow... Germany had to just cut all of its ties to China in terms of outbound investment, in terms of 
the four companies basef and the three car makers that are in china for china at the moment um i think this would be a very manageable blow to the german economy it would be a blow it would be costly it would be problematic there's a lot of profit, profits that wouldn't come back what's potentially much more dangerous is europe's reliance on imports from china for specific products such as rare earths and industrial metals put it another way when it comes to securing its energy supply in a post carbon world europe appears to have swapped one dependency for another 80% of europe's solar panel imports come from china the biggest area of concern is if something similar to the russia conflict and russia ukraine conflict were to happen um is our dependency on china on trade and on certain critical goods critical industries certainly in green technologies because at the moment if we want to have a self sufficient green transition we can't we just can't in frankfurt i'm carolyn luck for bloomberg news Hi, I'm Ron Krushevsky, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting. I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in JD Power's 2023 US Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestiefel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com/5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now to round off this episode we have what is known in the trade as bonus material. It's part of a striking contribution that historian Neil Ferguson made to a seminar on central banking which happened a few days ago in Washington. Unusually for Stefanomics, I wasn't involved in the event at all. An international banking seminar hosted by the group of 30. I was just listening in the audience, but I thought the main message of Professor Ferguson's talk deserved a wider hearing. So I should warn you right now it is a little chilling. Well Tom and you you promised something completely different. Uh may I remind you that Monty Python which made those words famous aired between 1969 and 1974 significant dates. 
I must say I wish uh, Paul Volcker were here. I suspect I'm not the only person in this room who misses him now more than ever. I really hope he would have approved of what I'm going to say. During the interwar era, in other words, the period between Cold War I and Cold War II, many economists and policymakers lost sight of the role of war in the global economy. Because the wars of the interwar era were quite small, Bosnia, Afghanistan, Iraq, more closely resembling colonial policing operations, we forgot that war is history's most consistent driver of inflation, debt defaults, even famines. And that's because large-scale war is simultaneously destructive of productive capacity, disruptive of trade, and destabilizing of fiscal and monetary policies. If you plot global battle deaths from interstate conflict against inflation, you'll see uh, that behind the so-called great moderation, there was a period of declining global conflict that lasted from the mid-70s, actually until the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. The coming of peace, like monetary policy, acted with a lag. The events of this year have reminded us what's at stake in cases of great power conflict. The war in Ukraine qualifies as such a conflict because Russia is still clearly a great enough power that it would by now likely have achieved its annexationist aims had it not been for large-scale financial and military, not to mention technological assistance to Ukraine from the United States, the European Union, the United Kingdom and other associated states. This is a big war measured by both casualties and costs. Now, economists like to treat or tend to treat wars as exogenous shocks because they're kind of hard to model. But from the historian's standpoint, war isn't exogenous. It's the endogenous prime mover of the historical process, the father of all things, as Heraclitus famously said. So two general points are really important to notice. First, wars have played a very noticeable role in the history of inflation expectations. Thanks to the excellent historical work of the Bank of England, we can trace the history of UK inflation expectations all the way back to the late 17th century. The peaks in short-run expectation uh, nearly all align with wars, and generally years when the war wasn't going well. 1709, War of Spanish Succession, 1757, the Seven Years' War, 1800, Napoleonic Wars, 1917, 1940. 1975 is the exception, but you could link that to the consequences of the 1973 Arab-Israeli War. The second point is that wars have often been responsible for discontinuities in the history of interest rates. As Paul Schmelzing has argued, work that the Bank of England first published, there's been a long-term downward trend in nominal and real long-term rates dating back to the period after the Black Death, which was, of course, almost certainly the biggest pandemic in history. The major breaks in that long downward trend were nearly all associated with wars, particularly big wars that destroyed capital stock and generated monetary financing of debt. Now, an unusual feature of the recent past is that in 2020, a pandemic had the fiscal and monetary consequences of a world war. This was unprecedented. No previous pandemic, including the much more devastating 1918-19 Spanish influenza, 
had comparable responses from finance ministries and central banks. Because most, not all, but most countries followed the United States in offsetting the supply shock caused by lockdowns and spontaneous behavioral changes with both large-scale deficit finance transfers and significant monetary expansion, like those who thought the pandemic would last forever, those who argued that inflation would be transitory like at the end of World War II turned out to be wrong. It's not just about 1973, it's also about Vietnam and other conflicts of the 1970s. In 2022, a war played an analogous role to the War of 1973 in pouring kerosene on an inflationary fire that was already burning. Both food and energy prices were driven up by the outbreak of the war and the sanctions imposed on Russia by the US and others. It goes without saying, I think, that the return of great power conflict has made the life of policymakers difficult, just as it did in 1973. I recently heard it said, at a gathering rather like this one, that the 20s are unlikely to be as inflationary as the 1970s on the ground that labor is less organized and so the risk of a wage price spirals lower. But I want to draw your attention to 10 important differences between our contemporary situation and the situation in the 1970s. One, monetary growth rates were significantly higher between Q2 2020 and Q2 2021 than at any point in the 1970s, and they remained in double digits even after velocity had recovered. That was the policy mistake in my view. Two, productivity growth is lower today much lower, actually, in all uh, OECD countries than it was in the 70s. Three demographic trends are worse today, with significantly higher dependency ratios. Four, the fiscal positions are much worse today, with much larger stocks of debt and projected deficits, not least in the United States. Five, financial markets are more complex today and therefore more fragile. Lots of schadenfreude are directed at the UK in the last few days, but let's be careful and not assume that this really is all a consequence of Britain's Monty Python politics. I don't think it is. Six, uh, then we had pollution, now we have climate change. Seven, our political stability looks a lot worse than it seemed even at the time of Watergate. Example, in a recent poll, Americans were asked, do you think the nation's democracy is in danger of collapse? 69% of Republicans and the same percentage of Democrats said that they did think so. Eight, the current war in Ukraine is lasting much longer than the war of 1973, approaching eight months compared with 19 days. So far, number nine, there's no sign of detente. Remember detente in the 1970s? In Cold War II, quite the opposite, in fact. So there's a non-trivial risk that we could soon witness a confrontation between the United States and the People's Republic of China over Taiwan. Tenth and finally, Although media attention currently focuses on the women's protests sweeping Iranian cities, it's worth recalling that these coincide with the failure of the attempt to revive the Iran nuclear deal, meaning that the Iranian regime will likely speed up its effort to acquire a nuclear weapon, increasing the probability of a war in that region because no Israeli government, whoever is prime minister, is going to countenance a nuclear-armed Iran. So, in conclusion, we may get lucky, 
We may just rerun the 1970s. Though judging by recent events in the UK, we may do it at a rather higher speed from the Barber budget to the winter of discontent in a matter of weeks rather than years. But, and this I mean very seriously, there is a scenario in which we get something closer to the 1940s, in which regional great power conflicts coalesce into something like World War III, albeit with smaller armies, many unarmed weapon systems, unmanned weapon systems, and far more powerful and accurate bombs. And we'll look back, I suspect, on the phrase quantitative tightening as an eccentric idea that almost no one was able to execute the monetary policy equivalent of Monty Python's Ministry of Silly Walks. Thank you very much. That's it for Stephanomics. Next week, a US focus as we look ahead to the midterm elections and consider the state of the US economy. In the meantime, do please rate the show if you like it and check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. You should also follow at Economics on Twitter if you haven't already. This episode was produced by Summer Sadi, Yang Yang and Magnus Henriksen. As I mentioned before, Carolyn Look and James Meager worked on that report about Europe and China. And special thanks also to the Group of 30, Tom Orlick and Professor Neil Ferguson. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.